All right, good morning, everybody. Praise the Lord. All right, there is a spirit of joy in this place here today. How did that happen? In the midst of all the craziness and the busyness and all of the stuff that's going on, there's a wonderful spirit of joy here in our midst. Holy Spirit of God is present in the house. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. All right, so I've got a message for you this morning. It's kind of long, so you're going to have to listen fast <laughs> so we can get it all in. But, it, but it's good. There's, there's just some good stuff on the, on the, uh, on the menu here this morning. So we're, um, we're going we're gonna to stay with Advent, and my title for this morning is Advent Week 3, In the Fullness of Time, and that comes from Galatians chapter 4, 4 through 5, and we'll be, uh, we'll be looking at that idea. You know that the general theme of Advent is preparation, right? It is a time to get ready for something important, very important, that's coming down the road. So it is a time to prepare ourselves for the greatest gift that was ever given, the most incredible thing that has ever happened. Remember, when I first started this whole Advent series, I um, opened my Bible, and I said, there's a, there's a blank page here. And it goes from the end of the Old Testament, which is Malachi. Then there's, the, there's this blank page, and then we pick it up with Matthew in the New Testament. And of course, that blank page represents how much time? 400 years. Somebody's listening. That's good. So 400 years of time in which God had not spoken to them. God had not given them a new word or a fresh word. God had not brought forth a, a prophetic voice. And so for 400 years, they waited and they wondered and they longed. And when we sang that this morning, O come, O come, Emmanuel, yeah, that was the feeling. Like, when is this actually going to happen? The promises had been given thousands of years prior to this, and the people of Israel had waited. So although God was not bringing any new word, he was not idle. He was working behind the scenes. And that's what I want to focus on today. What God was doing behind the scenes during those silent years to prepare the world for the arrival of his son. This is captured in the words that are found in Galatians chapter 4. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem us that are under the law so that we might, be, um, so that we might find adoption as sons. So in the fullness of time is what we're going to be talking about here this morning. Let's take a moment and commit this time and get our, commit our attention to the Lordship of Jesus and to the influence of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, thank you for what you're doing right here, what you're doing in lives right here, the changes that you're bringing, the awakening that you're bringing to so many hearts, the, the joy and the wonder, in, indescribable, that we are able to enter into and be able to touch. So we thank you for your presence here today. We pray your blessing upon our time here this morning. May you give us a heart to receive, lips to speak, um, the words of life. So bless our time this morning, O Lord God. May your anointing be upon this message, and not only on the message, but upon each and every one of us that we might hear and receive uh, what the Spirit has to say here today. So pray all these things now in Jesus' name and for his sake, and all of God's good-looking people said... There we go. We got you on that one. Okay. In Jonathan Swift's book, Gulliver's Travels, written about 300 years ago, Gulliver finds himself on an island inhabited by these tiny Lilliputians. These are little six-inch tall people 
Um, and they noticed that every time Gulliver is going to do anything, he never does anything without consulting his watch. To them, the watch must have been Gulliver's God, and it pointed out the time for every action of his life. Maybe you can relate to that. Watches are a good thing, but they're also a reminder of the control that time has over us, right? We're told to pay attention to the time. The Bible instructs us to redeem the time. To redeem means to buy it back. Why? Because time is the one thing that none of us can get any more of. You're going to get so much time, and you will be gone. How often do we hear ourselves say that we, especially at this time of the year, I just don't have enough time right, to accomplish or to fulfill all the things. So the last few weeks have had their hours filled with shopping and planning and programs and activities and traveling, et cetera. And frankly, it can be enough to kind of wear you out. Time can be a tyrant. And you only have so much, and so you have to use it or you will lose it. If we're not careful, time or the lack of time can just simply overwhelm us. That's why the good news today isn't about time. So aren't you glad I just did that whole prep to tell you that this is, that's not what this message is? In some ways, it is. But it's about how God is above time and how he uses time to fulfill his eternal purpose. Okay, so let's go to this text in Galatians chapter 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. The fullness of time is an amazing little phrase. It speaks of how God is working out his sovereign purposes in history. When you observe all the things that God has created, it reveals astonishing precision. Over the last couple of years here at the Homeschool Co-op, I've taught chemistry and I've taught that in the past. And when you get into that and you think of things like the macrocosm, the universe, or the microcosm, and an atom, breaking an atom, breaking a, a matter down to its most simple, most basic particles. And in both of those things, on that kind of scale, there's astonishing perfection. And you look at how this whole thing, like an atom, how organized it is, um, how predictable it is, how developed it really is, and how perfect it really is. And everything in this world is made up of these atoms. And if we could, we will never see an atom because it's just too small to be seen even by the, the uh, most powerful electronic telescopes, or uh, microscopes, I'm sorry. But um, um, there, there is in nature, all of these, in all of the things that God has made, um, astonishing precision. So when it comes to the most important event that's ever happened, this is, of course, especially true. Our text points to the fact that Jesus came into the world at just exactly the right moment of time. So how was the time full when Jesus was born at that first Christmas? Why did God the Father send Jesus Christ the Son just exactly at the time that he did? Well, to understand that, we need to review just a little history that shows us how and why Jesus came at the exact perfect time. Now, I know that in a crowd such as ours this morning, there will be some people that love history. How many love history? There we go, okay. And there are gonna be other people that are like, ah, uh, right, and just hate history. There's another one over there, right? <clears throat> but, um, 
to look at that history in that intertestamental period, those 400 years, when God was not speaking through a prophet or communicating some new ideas, some new thoughts to man, um, God was still working and working through the, the entire secular story of history to prepare, that's what Advent is all about, to prepare the world for the coming of his son. In the fourth century BC, an extraordinary young general king arose in the land of Greece. He didn't know it, but his coming had been foretold by over, t- over 200 years earlier by Daniel the prophet. Um, he took the throne at age 20. By the time he was 30, he had conquered the then known world. His name, Alexander the Great. The Greeks, of course, at that time believed that their culture was superior to all other cultures. This led to a process called Hellenization, in which the Greeks sought to superimpose their culture on all the subjugated people. Now again, Alexander had conquered the then known world by the time he was 30 years old. He died at 32 years old. Maybe malaria, maybe typhoid fever, maybe alcoholism or something like that. And he wept at at that age because there were no more worlds to conquer. But he had brought the entire world together, unknowingly brought the entire world together to speak one language the Koine Greek. The Greek became the the lingua franca, is the right term, the language of commerce, the language of trade, the the language of interaction. Um, The Greeks were the the original cultural hegemonists. We talked about that a while ago, this idea of cultural taking over a culture. And uh, they they suppressed subjugating people, Um, they imposed Greek culture, and because Alexander the Great conquered the nations of of his time, the Greek language became the common language of the world. No matter where you went, Spain, Egypt, Turkey, Italy, there were people who spoke and understood Greek. The existence of a common language enabled businesses to flourish and allowed cultures to interact. And as a result of Alexander's conquests, when Jesus came into the world, he entered a world that shared a common language. After Christ's death and resurrection, the Gospels, which were written in common Koine Greek, were taken all over the known world. And when his Gospel was taken to Spain, or when it was taken to Egypt, or Turkey, or Italy, everyone could understand it, and they could take root and grow. This explains why the New Testament was written in Greek, and why the Old Testament was later translated into it. As a matter of fact, during this intertestamental period of time, uh, Ptolemy II, Philadelphus, who was, after, after Alexander the Great died, he w- his empire was split into four uh, regions that were then um, s- overseen by four generals. Ptolemy II, Philadelphus, was the, was the presiding Greek um, ruler. There we go. So he was the presiding Greek ruler um, over the land of Israel, and he decided that the, the Bible should be translated into Greek. This is what's known today as the Septuagint, and this is a very helpful thing, because again, it made the Old Testament um, accessible to the people all over the world. So in, in the midst of all of these things, people are doing things um, because something is coming, some, but they don't even know it. Just like um, Alexander never knew that it was um, Daniel who had prophesied his coming, But by divine providence, God used Alexander's conquest to prepare the nations to be able to hear the message of the Savior's birth 
in one common language. After all, the most important event in history was coming, and God was preparing the world to receive it. God was preparing the world to hear it. Why? Because it was in the fullness of time. After Alexander's death in 323 BC, his empire began to crumble, wars and conflicts had broken out everywhere. But then in 63 BC, stay with me just a little while, just a couple more dates, a couple more nations, a couple more people, right? In 63 BC, a new world dominating power arose. Of course, that's Rome. With the coming of this new empire came taxation, and so censuses needed to be taken all over the world in order to find out who, what people were there and how, how much they could be taxed. The second chapter of Luke's gospel records one such event. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. It was this census that brought Joseph and Mary to their ancestral town, the place where the Savior was to be born. This little seemingly insignificant Judean town of Bethlehem. Why is that important? Well, something extremely ex significant had been revealed in the 8th century BC. So 800 years prior, something extremely significant had been revealed by the Spirit to Micah the prophet. Here's what Micah got. Here's one of the things that Micah learned from God and wrote down. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. By the way, this is important because Messiah must be a descendant of David. God promised David by covenant that he would never lack a man to sit on the throne of Israel. That was God's covenant promise to David. And of course, David had many descendants, many of the kings, but that, that promise is ultimately fulfilled in the person of Christ. Now, little did the mighty Caesar Augustus know that when he made this rule that everyone would need to go to their ancestral town to be taxed, Little did he know that he was doing God's bidding, that he was playing right, amen, right? He was playing right into the hand of, the, of God who was building the big picture. Now, um, with Rome now in firm control of world power, the Pax Romana was established. This is another thing that took place during this inter intertestamental period. Law and order ruled the land. Travel was generally safe and easy. Never before or after had this part of the world enjoyed such an extended period of peace. The Pax Romana enabled the apostles to travel freely throughout the world to spread the gospel, and they did so on the vast network of Roman roads that Caesar had provided. You've heard the, the, the expression, all roads lead to Rome. Well, that was because of the work that they had done in order to integrate and tie together all these disparate and far-reaching parts of the empire. They had built these roads and it made um, 
and it made it possible for them, to, for, for the apostles, and just for people in general to be able to um, enjoy fellowship and, to, and, and for the gospel to go forward. Um, and they did it on the vast network of Roman roads that Caesar had provided. This gave them easy access to all corners of the Roman Empire. Because of the Pax Romana, Jesus could accomplish so much in his three short years of ministry. His disciples could, could soon start new churches all over the Roman Empire. This was all because the Heavenly Father used Rome's achievements to spread the gospel. Isn't this amazing? So that behind the scenes, God is not talking, but God's not idle. God is working and God is setting things up. But wait, there's even more. Six centuries before Christ, Judah and Jerusalem were destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. Many of the Jews were taken prisoner and brought into Babylonian, Babylonian captivity. Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were some of the notables among them. Many of the rest of God's people were scattered all over the known world. These Jews had to find a way to keep their faith alive. And it was at this time that they began the whole synagogue thing. Prior to that, Jews lived in Israel, and when they went to worship, they went down to Jerusalem, and that because that was the temple, that's where God was. That's where the presence of God was. But once they, they were dispersed all over the known world, they had to find a way to keep their faith alive. And so, um, in these synagogues, the scriptures were read, and the hope was kept alive for the coming of Messiah. The synagogues were the first place where Jesus, first places where Jesus and his disciples went to proclaim that Messiah had actually come. And it was in the synagogue that the first gospel message was first proclaimed. The synagogue became a model, a prototype for the Christian church. It was into synagogues that were spread in all major cities, all major regions, that Paul and those that traveled with Paul and any of the first evangelists went in order to first present this message. But it had all been set up because of something that had happened 600 or 586 years before this, because when, when Nebuchadnezzar came and destroyed Jerusalem and took a whole bunch of people out and the rest were dispersed all over the place, when they set up these synagogues, they were setting up essentially prototype churches, something that later would become um, uh, the church to the, to, to the believers. Behind the scenes, God used the dispersions which were meant to destroy Israel to spread the good news of the Savior of Israel to the entire world. To the average observer, it looked like a catastrophe, the people being spread around the whole world. But it was actually preparation for the event Paul describes in Galatians chapter 4 as the fullness of time. The good news for us is that in days past and even today, what you can draw out of this whole thing is that God is in control. Even when I don't see it, you're working, we sing. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop. You never stop working. And God was doing things, and, it, and God is doing things right now in your life. God is prepared. You know what? God is so much more interested in who you will be 10 years from now than he is today. And if he has to do a little work, and if he has to change the agenda a little bit, and if he's got to throw you a curveball or two maybe to get you out of some foolish practice or into some successful or um, positive practice, no problem for him. He's happy to do it because he's setting you and I up for success. 
And I'm not talking about success. You know what I'm talking about. I'm success is looking at Jesus at the end of the road and him saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. That's, that's real success. That's eternal success. And God is setting us up. So God is in control. It's important to, to derive all of that. Our faithful, loving God is the Lord of times, Greek word chronos, and seasons, Greek word kairos. In the uh, Vines, uh, Vines Dictionary, uh, Expository Dictionary of New Testament Words, he writes, broadly speaking, chronos expresses the duration of a period. Kairos stresses it as marked by certain features. Take a look at Acts 1-7 and see how this is played out. Now, of course, this is leading us right up to the promise of the Holy Spirit in Acts 1-8. But this, so this is just prior to it. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times, chronos, the lengths of the periods, or the seasons, kairos, epochs, characterized by certain events that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the world. Kronos speaks of quality. Kairos marks quality. Here's an illustration that uh, Paul gives from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 1. And, and the reason I'm bringing all this up is just simply that there are, there is chronos time, there is kairos time, there are lengths of time, there are moments of time, but God is Lord over all of those things. And it's important that we declare him and proclaim him as in control. Now, here's the, uh, the passage from 1 Thessalonians 5. Now concerning the times, Kronos, and the seasons, Kairos, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, uh, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. The lesson, it was not necessary. It, it might be interesting, and it is interesting to, to look at various, you know, we, I don't know if you've ever gotten caught up in that, but, you know, over the last, I would say over the last 40 years of my being a believer, there have been probably 10, 12 15 people who have been named the Antichrist. Almost every American president gets a shot at it, you know. And there are always some people, there are some people that we hear about, some, you know what I mean? So, so there are people along the way that uh, you want, and, and it's interesting to, um, to get into some of that and to study some of that and to learn more. But it's not necessary to stress about the specifics of persons or situations. Um, or of durations of time. What we need to focus on, according to what Paul is saying, is that we are walking in the light that God has thus far given us. And all these other things will take care of themselves. So, here's what we, re we, what we need to remember. History is his story. Amen? History is his story. And even today, with the chaos that we see going on around us, do you think God is unaware? No. As I mentioned last week, our problem 
stems from the fact that we have said to God, thank you, we don't need you anymore. And that's been going on for about 100 years. And while that has gone on, God has decided that, okay, um, it's kind of like this passage, um, I won't get into it now, but it's in Isaiah chapter two. And God says, um, God responds to the fact that the people don't want him around anymore. So he says, all right, I'll leave. But if I leave, the artist, the craftsman, the wise person, every good thing that you love goes with me because I am the author of everything that is good and just and right and holy and true and faithful. That's what I am. But when I'm out, all of that will be gone. And that's what we see in our culture today, isn't it? We see this, this, this crumbling of morality. We see this crumbling of truth. We're asked to buy into things that we know are not true. That can never be true, but we have to, we have to agree with them. And this whole, this, this thing, um, this is what happens when the wrath of God is released or when God himself just decides to depart. So we need to remember history is his story. Our times are in his almighty hands. You can be comforted that God is in control of whatever is facing you. And if your heavenly father can use the kingdoms and the events of world history to accomplish his purposes, surely he can use the events in your life to care for you and to accomplish his will for you. We have a mighty and loving God. Our times are in his hands. Even when our eyes cannot see it, our spiritual eyes can see that God takes care of us. His reign over time is for our good. St. Paul reminds us in Romans chapter five and verse six, while we were yet sinner, while we were still weak, and that means we were powerless to help ourselves. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So again, all of these things were done with pinpoint precision. Again, to imagine that Jesus could come into Jerusalem on a donkey um, uh, over the last week of his life that he could come into Jerusalem on a donkey, that he could enter the temple, that he could, he could actually be arrested and crucified at the very time when Passover lambs were being sacrificed for the Passover the next day, realizing that whole custom of Passover, that whole feast or tradition of Passover goes back to Moses in 1,500 years prior to that. And here is Jesus fulfilling the thing, the Passover that happened in Egypt that freed the people of Israel from the land of Egypt. Well, that was one thing. That was a great thing. But that was only a type. That was only a shadow. That was only something that was letting us know that something greater was yet to come. So, God was working through all these things. In Christ Jesus, God broke into time, and at the cross, he defeated sin, death, and the devil. He did this for us while we were powerless to help ourselves. We who by nature have no time for God, we who are so busy and consumed with time, we who time and time again rebel against him, we who are by nature, Ephesians chapter 2, children of wrath, instead receive his love and his mercy. God tells us through the prophet Isaiah, with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you. This is the timeless message of Christmas. Jesus became a man because he is the compassionate God. He is the compassion of God made into human flesh. But there is one historical aspect that we haven't yet considered. It doesn't seem to fit with Christmas, and yet it also occurs in the fullness of time. 
God originally ordained the temple to be the place where he would meet with his people. It was, the te- it was in the temple that God in human flesh met with and taught people. It was in that temple that the perfect Lamb of God would come on the day of Passover when lambs were sacrificed for the sins of the people and declare himself to be the sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. It was in the temple where hatred would grow towards the Son of God to the point that he would be handed over to the Romans for execution. The Jews would have stoned Jesus, but only the Romans could execute an accused. And and then that brings us on on a trip back into the Old Testament, which prophesies the death of Jesus and how he would die. And if the Romans were not in occupation, he would have been stoned to death. But... He needed to be crucified that was that to, in order to fulfill the types and the shadows of everything that had gone before. And so um, it was the common way for the Romans to, I'm sorry, the Romans um, could execute and accused. And what was the common way? Um, crucifixion. Isaiah said he was chastened to bring us peace and he was by Roman whips. King David said that men would gamble for the clothes of Christ. And they did because Romans were entitled to the clothing of the condemned. The Romans enjoyed their method of execution. And in the fullness of time, Jesus allowed them to use their common method for his sacrifice. Jesus came to die when it was God's perfect time, when it was the fullness of time, and everything was done to save us from our sins. His death took place around 33 AD, but it transcends time so that in this time and in this place, you will find the meaning of behind Christmas, which is your salvation. Jesus came into the world in order to give himself that you and I might be saved. Christmas reminds us that God is the Lord of all time. He's God of your time. He uses time and history and the events of our lives for his eternal purposes. In Christ Jesus, he has taken time for us. He invites you to entrust your lives and times to him for he is Lord of time and he uses it for you. Now, all of that has described kind of the the secret working of God behind the scenes in order to lay the foundation to get everything ready so that everything could be prepared for when he brought. I always think of it as like God has been waiting for the fullness of time, but in the fullness of time, it's like he said, I got my player on the field. I got my guy, and my guy will not fail. And to me, that is so amazing. It's like God is waiting patiently. He's moving through the history. He's moving through the whole story of, of, of the Old Testament and all of that, all the various different themes that we find there. But then finally that day comes, and it's like God said, in the person of Jesus Christ, I'm here, let's go. Right? I'm here, ready to go. And that turns loose the the, the grand conclusion of 2,000 years of promises, 2,000 years of, of stories and activities and things that happened. And then for these 400 years that we've talked about here this morning, where God wasn't speaking, God wasn't saying anything new, but he was setting the whole world up, putting the whole thing in play for one reason, to bring his guy on the field. So when Jesus comes on the field, 
it is going to bring success, final success to the plan of God. But I'd like to enter the, into the record one more thing for your consideration this morning. One more way. But this, the, I, when I first came across this, it blew me away. So I, I'm, I'm kind of hoping it will blow you away as well. I'd like to enter for your consideration God's plan. Let's begin at the beginning. In the beginning, God created. Much to the chagrin of 20th century science, of the 20th century scientific world, there was a beginning to everything. Do you realize that before 1920, the dominant scientific um, hypothesis was something called the steady state theory, which meant that they believed that the universe was eternal. There was no need to explain it. It just always was. And so things that you know, went on just continued to go on. But then in the 1920s, um, Hoyle of the famous um, Hoyle telescope discovered that the universe was expanding. He told Albert Einstein, Albert Einstein had to come and see it for himself because he hated the idea of it. Why? Because it meant that everything had a beginning. It meant that all of this is not eternal. Because if, the whole, if everything is moving away from itself and you can calculate the speed at which everything is moving, then at some point everything just must have been one thing. They call that the singularity. They call that the Big Bang. And it was with great resistance that the science, even Einstein had fudged his theory of relativity because he did not want to account for the expansion of the universe. So. With, with all of that, um, there was th this, in this, this passage here brings us to the truth. There, has, there was a beginning to everything, of course, except the one who's mentioned at the beginning, God himself. He has always been there, even before the beginning. And that's what I want to lead you into now. Before there was time, before there was space, before there was matter, there was God. We know a little from the time of the world's creation, but occasionally we are allowed to peek back, deeper still. Scripture gives us four glimpses of this time using the phrase, before the foundation of the world. This phrase was spoken by Jesus, it was spoken by Paul, it was spoken by Peter, and what is it that we see? Does it tell us everything about God's plan before creation existed? Well, let's take a look. God's plan before the foundation of the world, the love. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me, for you have loved me before the foundation of the world. The first instance of this phrase, before the foundation of the world, is given by Jesus himself. And what does it speak of? It speaks of love. The Bible says that God is love. Beloved, let us love one another, for love comes from God. He that loves knows God, but he who does not love cannot possibly know God, for God is love. Okay? In this we find true love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave himself for us. Beloved, we need to love one another. That, this is the message. Now, here's the thing that, that is so wonderful, so unique, completely unique about the message of the gospel, the message of the Bible. The God that we serve is a triune being. He is one God, but he has three individual persons within that 
Godhead, okay? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Long before there was ever anything created, before angels, before people, before universe, before matter, before anything was created, there was love in that setting, and that love was the motivator. You see, if we were serving a God like Allah, okay, by comparison, okay? Allah is a singular being. He's obviously the, the, the God of the Muslims and, and, and uh, monotheistic, right? So he is a singular God, but he couldn't possibly be love because prior to the creation, he would have been all by himself. There's nobody to love. Love requires a receiver. Love requires a sharing there is no love without that. That's what love genuinely is, right? Absolutely. And so, in all of this, the Bible says that God is love, and long before anything ever happened, that love was in operation within the divine being himself. This is the coolest thing in the world, because it means that at the heart of the story, at the heart of the universe, there is love. How else would you gather that just by living down here on planet Earth? Would you gather that, oh, it's very obvious that what it's all about is love. Well, you might if you, know, if you listen to the popular music songs of the day or something like that, but the, the longer you live down here in this world, you would have a great concern as to whether or not there was any love, any real love at all. Right? They've talked about the altruism gene, trying to somehow account for the fact that people love each other. No, we love each other because love comes, because God has demonstrated his love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So before time, before matter, before angels, before humanity, there was love. Love within and between the Godhead. There was love between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. When the Bible describes love, it says the following, and I'm pulling up this reference from J.B. Phillips. Um, I use it all the time in weddings because it's, uh, it, it just, it's fresh. So let me share it with here this morning. Because he's going to, ch chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians defines and describes love. And it's not this mushy, warm, soft, and cuddly feeling. That's not it at all. Because this love, and, and even as when we're going through this passage, if you just substitute God in here, this God of which I speak is slow to lose patience. He looks for a way of being constructive. He is not possessive. He is neither anxious to impress, nor does he cherish inflated ideas of his own being, right, or of his own um, importance. I'll get back to it in a second, but you, get, you, you see that Paul is writing to describe this agape thing that he has discovered. Agape is the Greek word for love. And in God and in Christ and in the sacrifice that, that was done on our behalf, Paul says, in this is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave himself for us. Beloved, if God loved us in this way, we ought also to love one another, he goes on. So here's, what, here's, how, here's how the Bible describes love. This love of which I speak is slow to lose patience. This God of which I speak is slow to lose patience. Aren't you glad? Huh? If you had the power, you probably would have just 
pressed the smite button a long time ago. Why, why should I take up good oxygen, you know? <laughs> right? Thank God. He is, he's, uh, I, my friend from the early 90s, Wayne Farley, who, um, well, songwriting uh, combo that we did and Force for Good that we, uh, that we did for a while. But he used to have an expression. He said, our God is the God of a thousand one more chances. This love of which I speak is slow to lose patience. It looks for a way of being constructive. It is not possessive. It is neither anxious to impress nor does it cherish inflated ideas of its own importance. Love has good manners and does not pursue selfish advantage. Can you believe that we're saying God has good manners and does not pursue selfish advantage? You know what is the most incredible thing about God? He's humble. He's not, he's not about himself. He doesn't have to be. He's always been. He knows who he is. There's no, there, there's no need for him to prove anything, right? Um, Love has good manners. God has good manners and does not pursue selfish advantage. Love is not touchy. It does not keep account of evil or gloat over the wickedness of other people. On the contrary, it is glad with all good men when truth prevails. Love knows no limit to its endurance, no end to its trust, no fading of its hope. It can and will outlast anything. It is, in fact, the one thing that still stands when all else has fallen. This verse describes what and who God is, for God is love. Right from the beginning, love by its very nature does not seek its own. That is, it's not self-focused. But it needs another to love. And this love is willing to bear all things, to believe all things, to endure all things for somebody else. That's it, okay? This God that we're serving is willing to bear all things and believe he's never going to give up on you. And you may get tired and you may get weary and you may get bummed out and you may get frustrated in your walk with God and it happens to everybody at some point. There's a dark night, there's a difficult time, there's a problem you can't get over or around or under or through. There's challenges that come into your life. But God is never going to give up on you. In scripture it says, no, I will not never leave you. That's the Greek no, I will not never leave you, so the double negative makes it a positive, right? So while this love existed within and between the Godhead, by its very nature, this love was also thinking of another. It was thinking of others not yet created, that it would be willing to bear all things and endure all things for. I'm sure you know who that is, but if not, have a look at the second mention of the phrase, before the foundation of the world. God's plan before the foundation of the world. The recipients. Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he has made us accepted in the beloved. What an amazing passage. 
It's understandable that there would, be father, there, there would be love between the Father and Son and Holy Spirit before the foundation of the world. But this passage tells me that God was also thinking back then of all those that would be his even before we even came into being. He was thinking in love towards me before the foundation of the world. Why is he thinking about me then, let alone you? That was a, that's a joke, son. It's, all right, just so, just so you know. <clears throat> but no, I, I, you know, I, I can understand you probably better than I can understand me. He, God, would, God would certainly want to save you before he'd save me. And, he, and if he's thinking about you and me, knowing what we become, why is it in his love that he is per- perceiving all of this? The wonder of the passage tells us that even before anything came into being, God because of his own good pleasure and will and love for us, chose us to be holy and blameless in his sight. God, it seems, right from the absolute beginning, before the foundation, before there was anything, was looking forward to a time when there would be many in his family. If you want to know what God is up to these days, he's building a family. You are invited to join. And you would be foolish not to. Anyway, Surely God has a wonderful plan, and he, and he wants to include you in that plan. Then, God's plan before the foundation of the world. Now, again, keep in mind, all of this was figured out and done before anything ever happened. This was all worked out. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb, without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifested in these last days, last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. It says he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world. Jesus Christ was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. It was all worked out, it was all done, it was all agreed to, it was all it was all set up and it was going to be fulfilled. I have a little note here from J. Vernon McGee, who you may know, um, just a, kind of an old-time preacher, but here's what he writes. He says, when I was in seminary studying theology, it seemed pretty important to know whether or not foreknowledge comes from foreordination, but frankly, since that time, I've not been concerned with which comes first. I realize now that the important thing is that Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. To put it very simply, The cross of Christ was not an ambulance sent to a wreck. Christ was the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world because God knew all the time that Vernon McGee would need a savior. And he loved him enough to provide that savior. And so I don't need a computer to go over this. I only need a God with a great big heart of love who provided redemption by his grace. Amen. Amen. So we've had... The foundation, before the foundation of the world, the love that existed before the foundation of the world, uh, the recipients had been chosen before the foundation of the world. Um, we get to the cost. The cost, of course, was the, the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. And one more, God's plan, before the, God's plan before the beginning of time, the promise. 
There is a final verse that uses a similar, similar phrase to describe something that happened before time or even existed. We have seen so far that before time, before the, creation of, before the creation of the world, there was love between the Father and the Son, but that love extended to us who would believe. We were in his thoughts. We were chosen before the foundation of the earth to be holy and blameless before him. Finally, we saw that the cost was the death of God to fully show humanity is love, Jesus would have to demonstrate it by dying in their place. With this in mind, Scripture tells us about an ancient promise. This is from the book of Titus. Titus, we got you in the, in the mix here this morning. And he writes, Paul writes, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect, and to the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before the beginning of time. Well, now, what does that mean? How did God promise eternal life before the beginning of time? Let me show you how John MacArthur defines this. God's plan of salvation for sinful mankind was determined and decreed before man was even created. The promise was made to God the Son. Ask of me, Psalm 2 says, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the uttermost part of the earth for your possession. And so it was before any of this ever happened that within the divine Godhead itself, everything was worked out. The Father masterminded the plan, delivered the plan. It was going to require a submission on the part of the Son. The Son willfully accepted the submission and ran the play, and it was a grand slam home run. Hallelujah. And all of this was worked out before the foundation of the earth. So while those 400 years might seem like God wasn't up to very much, he sure was. He was doing a whole lot. He was setting, he was moving nations, moving empires, moving kings, moving Caesar Augustus, moving things all over the place just to get things ready so that the scripture in Galatians 4, but when in the fullness of time God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem us who were under the law. Hallelujah to God. Amen. So that's what we're prepping up to. The, the whole thing about Advent is preparation, right? It is all about what John the Baptist said. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. When they asked him who he was, are you the Christ? Are you the prophet? Are you the one that is to come? He said, no, I'm, 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 are you Elijah? No. He said, who are you? He says, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. And that's what we're thinking about right here at this Christmas time, right? We're preparing to receive the greatest gift that has ever been given, that will ever be given, and to celebrate and glorify. I felt like we, we touched it this morning in, within the music, within the, within the singing. Singing, doesn't singing should not be equated to worship because it's not fair. It's really not fair. Say, you know, a person could come in here this morning and, and sing those songs probably and not know the Lord at all. Singing itself, by itself, is not necessarily worship. But you can feel something. You, you, I could. Could you feel it this morning? Right? It, it was just deeper than that's when we get into the place of adoration and praise and thanksgiving. We begin to give glory to God, and it is the best thing in the world. So after all that, I hope, and then, then we deliver the word and bring a couple of thoughts out to you and, you know, kind of put all this on you and say, like, all right, get out of there and change, get out of here and go change the world. 
But that's the goal, isn't it? That's the job. Get out of here, get the salt out of the shaker, so to speak, right? And go out and change the world. And you and I will change the world when we walk in this spirit. When we walk in this spirit that God is in control. So I know he's, he's got it together. I don't see it. Maybe I don't feel it. Maybe I, I'm not experiencing it right now, but I'm not giving up on this because he's not giving up on me. Amen. Hallelujah to God. Oh, I got to quit. Five minutes left. But let's take a moment and, and let's, let's, let's worship, shall we? Let's do that.